The State Department is hiring so it can handle a surge in passport applications. With summer travel on the rise, the department's Bureau of Consular Affairs is authorizing lots of overtime in an effort to rein in passport wait times. The department is also planning to roll out online passport renewal later this year after letting the federal workforce test out that system. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with more. And what's the workload? I mean, all of a sudden the world is on again, traveling, and people want passports by the millions. Right. Last year, the State Department broke a record when it issued 22 million passport books and cards last year. But you can count on that being a short-lived record here. The department is set to break that record this year and issue about 25 million passport books and cards as about a 15 percent increase from what we saw already. And this is through no lack of the employees working in the office. They have been back at their offices since the summer of 2020. They were right up there with the IRS in terms of sending people back soonest to deal with their backlog. Well, mine doesn't expire until I think 2025, so I won't pester them this year if they're going to do 25 million. And how long are applicants having to wait? What's their average wait time looking like now? We're still looking at elevated levels there that we saw already in the COVID-19 pandemic. Routine processing is taking about 10 to 13 weeks. And if you kick them an extra $60, you can get that down to seven to nine weeks. That's on top of the $130 baseline that you're already paying them. Wow. I remember one time a family member had expired, someone of a not yet of age traveling with us. And you can actually go into a passport office in D.C. and a few other cities, and they'll do it while you wait. You pay handsomely for that. But I remember the clerk saying there, she says, now, don't you move. Don't move out of that chair. Don't leave this office until you have that passport. Don't go for coffee or anything. We're going to get you set. You know, the flight was the next morning. All right. And on a new passport, then, same deal as a renewal? Yeah, we're looking at the same wait time, whether it's a new passport, an existing passport that needs to be renewed for another 10 years. It's the same queue for everyone. All right. And what are they doing to try to reduce the backlog? They've got only so many people. They've got rising numbers incoming. What are they doing here? They've had to authorize just a lot of overtime to deal with this workload. What we heard in a recent uh, hearing of the House Foreign Affairs Committee is that the State Department and their Bureau of Consular Affairs have approved tens of thousands of hours of overtime per month. We're talking in the order of thirty to 40,000 hours each month just to keep up with this, again, pretty significant backlog of what they're dealing with. Wow. So that means individual employees might be working double shifts or something just to help get the processing done. Right. And in some cases, this is not voluntary overtime. In some cases, this is mandatory. And this is just something that's part of what they need to do. And you were going to have dinner with the family. I don't think so. Is this partly recovery from the COVID impact on state operations? It definitely is. Just to give you a sense of how heavily hit they were by the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Bureau of Consular Affairs is fee-for-service driven. And so when we were in 2020, 2021, they saw a 50% drop in their revenue and Congress had to step in through its many emergency appropriations packages and backfill that loss in revenue. They had reven- they had appropriations that made up that difference and that gave the Bureau a little bit more flexibility in how it was able to fund its operations. But as a result of all of this, the Bureau had to freeze hiring for a while. It only saw a revenue increase starting in late 2021, and that's when it was able to resume hiring passport adjudicators. And 
in terms of that hiring overseas, which is another part of the operations here, that only began at the beginning of 2022. In other words, passport operations are fee funded. They're not appropriated funded. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's tough on an agency when the fees dry up. And what do you do with all those people and then try to get them back? So what are their current hiring plans? What are they doing now to get the people, the bodies in place to process all of this? Right. So Assistant Secretary of State for Consular Affairs, Rena Bitter, gave lawmakers an update there. What they're looking to do is that they've already grown the workforce by about 10 percent. That comes down to about 177 new passport adjudicators. That's hiring that's already happened this year. And the Bureau is looking to grow the workforce by an additional 10 percent. That's still in the works. And what Bitter told lawmakers is that this is a long hiring process, even by federal standards, just given the sensitivity of this work. These are national security positions. Every passport adjudication, every visa adjudication is a national security position. And it does take time to onboard people to ensure that they have the appropriate clearances, to make sure they're suitable, to train them in many cases in quite difficult languages. So all of these things take a little bit of time before we're able to get people out in the field. And again, that's Assistant Secretary of State for Consular Affairs, Rena Bitter. She said that this hiring is an essential part of what the Bureau needs to do. But she also told lawmakers that hiring is only one piece of the puzzle and that they do need to modernize their IT. We don't want to surge our way out of this. We don't want to insist on people doing overtime. We want to be able also to invest in modernized systems and equipment to be able to support these functions. And that, of course, brings up the question of online passport renewal. We've had online tax return submittal now for, you know, a couple of decades. What's the latest on the State Department's online renewal? Yeah, bringing this into the digital age hasn't been easy. This is something that has been in the works for many years now. But this is something that was also in the spotlight through the Biden administration's focus on improved customer experience. What the Bureau is looking at is that by the end of this year, 5 million Americans will be able to renew their passports entirely online. Line through this new system. This is something that's gone through a bit of a soft launch. The department began testing this out in February of last year. They invited federal employees and contractors to test it out. They got between February and August of last year, 10,000 renewal applications, and they were able to handle those. And then they said, all right, let's turn the valve a little bit. And so they opened it to the general public last summer, and they got half a million applications. And so they've been dealing with those ever since. They did close that window for everyone to test it out in February of this year. And not to brag, Tom, I was one of the people who was in that queue and tested it out. I got my new passport this April. Wow. So it does work. They just need to scale it and know that the quality controls are in there and that the reliability is in there, correct? Right. At this point, they're really just doing the stress testing, doing these things at scale, doing things that are able to accommodate a much larger workload than what they started out with. And they've been working on this for a decade, though, right? Yeah. You know, there were some recent IG reports about this where the State Department expected this capability to go live in 2016. And you know, that was a deadline that was pushed back from even earlier. And this is something that will be a see it when you believe it kind of thing. But this has been in the works for a very long period of time. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher 
Education Administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about 
ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. 
Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.